This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we had a Super Bowl this past Sunday, and I'm always horrified to realize that many people will skip the event that is supposed to get you to watch the ads and go straight to the ads. I've always found this to be horrifying. And then afterwards, people will will review, not the game, but the commercials. And yeah, someone complimented the ad that made the best use of Funky Town. Radio Parallax did not realize that was a category. And yet, I find myself unable to adopt a completely superior attitude about ignoring the commercials because, in fact, I watch the commercials. What's a man to do when he's watching a ball game and the girlfriend says, ooh, let's watch the commercials? I have to admit, I did laugh at the commercial. I guess it was for a beer that had Jeff Bridges in full Big Lebowski uniform straight into the middle of the screen, sit down and order one of the beers, which causes the waitstaff to collapse over the fact that he's not ordering a white Russian. I don't know if it was that ad or another. I think it was another ad where they briefly panned over Charlie Sheen, whose comment was, anything, I'm nuts. I have to admit, I laughed out loud at that one. But the same ad where the dude is ordering a beer, the camera cuts briefly over to the most interesting man in the world sitting at the bar. Who looks over and says, interesting choice. Sad to know that maybe the last appearance of the most interesting man in his the old guy version. We're still laughing at so many of those, like, if opportunity knocks and he's not home, opportunity waits. Anyway, back to the game, which, well, if you watched it, you know it was a bit of a snoozer. Dare we say it, it was the kind of Super Bowl that soccer fans would enjoy. Yes, they went up the field and down the field and up the field and down the field, and it seemed nobody could score. The game entered the fourth quarter, 3-3. to And evidently, the nation found the halftime show to be quite a snoozer as well. The band that agreed to perform at halftime was humiliated a few months back by reports that bigger acts had in fact rejected the offer. Let's face it, if you love defense, and you really love defense... It was your kind of game. And I think everyone in the nation was surprised to see just how good Julian Edelman was. He wound up earning the MVP of the game award for his outstanding performance. Among some texts going back and forth during the game was someone commenting that it was nice to see his Jewish boy doing so well. And in fact, while Julian Edelman's mother is, is not Jewish, his father is which prompted another instant message during the game to note that whole matriarchal thing is is out. He's a member of the tribe. A member of the tribe and a wide receiver. Most would agree that that is an unusual combination. A couple days after the game, I was out in my garage going through some of the old files of Radio Parallax dating back 15 years. 
trying to toss a lot of it, but finding that so much of it is still relevant today. How about the special issue of New Scientist? 2005, the year of global warming. New Scientist apparently didn't count on the Koch brothers and dark money and denial of global warming by the Republican Party of the United States of America, but that's a discussion for another day. In that same pile, dating back 15 years, I did find a little piece I'd set aside of Jewish genealogy. The subheadline was, since according to Jewish law, anyone born to a Jewish mother is Jewish, look who's Jewish. I think we'll go through a few of these just for the heck of it. Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro's mother is Jewish. His father's not. Robert De Niro, member of the tribe. Cary Grant. Yes, Mr. Cary Grant. His mother, Elsie, was Jewish. His father, Elias Leach, was not. Oh, and his original name? Archibald Alexander Leach. Robin Leach, formerly of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, was his first cousin. David Bowie. David Bowie's mother's Jewish. His father is not. And how about Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill, it's widely known, had an American mother. Her name was Jenny Jerome. Jerome Avenue in the Bronx is named for her family, who were Bronx landowners and Jewish. And Harrison Ford makes the list also. Since I can never resist this pile of material, uh, let's pull a few other items out of it. The Washington Post had an ad that got some buzz in the Super Bowl, talking about how important it was that freedom of the press be maintained. I noticed the ad didn't at any point refer to the hatchet job the Post did on, on Gary Webb, but should we let bygones be bygones? Maybe. There's a little item from 15 years ago I feel like citing. comes from an editorial in the Sacramento Bee, which asked... What's news? To cable television networks, it seems to be whatever draws viewers and competition, especially between Fox and CNN. They referred to Bob Costas, a broadcaster best known for his coverage of sports, who reinforced the widespread judgment that he's a class act by refusing to engage in the ghoulish practice of dwelling endlessly on a single event so far without result. The disappearance and possible death of anyone is grievous for loved ones and deserves some attention by the media, but Costas drew the line when CNN scheduled an entire program on Larry King Live, on which Costas had been sitting in for the regular host, about the missing Natalie Holloway. When the network declined his request to pick another subject, Costas politely declined to be the host. We wish more people had the guts of a Bob Costas, who is, in our opinion, a class act. Here's an item from the Gossip column of the week. We can't resist. Dateline November 2005. Article states, ratings for Donald Trump's The Apprentice were fading fast, and Trump, with his usual gallantry, blames Martha Stewart. The piece notes that his weekly audience had dropped from 21 million in the first season to 10 million by the fourth. Trump said that the rating for his shows are still good, but he blames Martha's struggling new version of of her NBC show for eating into his audience. Well, I think it was clear even back in 2005. That guy wasn't going anywhere. You know, we used to start every show with a quote and a quip. And we've kind of gotten out of the practice of doing that. But there's a bunch here that are so good. I think we're going to resume it today. We're going to do a half dozen. Starting with Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons, who once said, When authorities warn you of the sinfulness of sex, there's an important lesson to be learned. Do not have sex with the authorities. Here's one we like from Andre Gede. Believe those who are seeking the truth. Doubt those who find it. Here's a good one from W.H. Auden. We are all here on earth to help others. 
What on earth the others are here for, I don't know. And author Herm Albright weighed in with, A positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. And from lawyer-diplomat Edward John Phelps, we have, The man who makes no mistakes does not usually make anything. And lastly, George Orwell. On the whole, human beings want to be good, but not too good and not quite all the time. And although we're already hitting the subject of football, I want to hit it one more time. The evil Mark Davis, son of the evil Al Davis, who is planning for the second time to move the Oakland Raiders out of Oakland, has pulled out of lease negotiations for his final year in Oakland, with the argument that if he paid money to the city of Oakland, he'd just be financing the lawsuit that they're bringing against him for moving the team. What's really disgusting is that, that well, he's got three choices. Go back to Oakland, which he should do, or play in Levi Stadium, which apparently the NFL is opposing, or there's the third option, go play in Oracle Park, where the San Francisco Giants play, a stadium dedicated only to baseball, often complimented for the fact, often complimented, for the fact that it is simply a baseball stadium. How could San Francisco be aiding and abetting Mark Davis in his bad behavior? Do you know Mr. McMillan? I think you're right. You know, let's take a trip south of the border down to Venezuela momentarily to talk about the fact that, boy, things are in turmoil down there. Most politically active friends I have are taking a very dim view of the effort to unseat Nicolas Maduro. But as we put in this program before, he seems to be no prize. He was handpicked for the presidency by his predecessor. He's tried to dissolve the National Assembly when they gave him grief. He's rigged elections. He's put his political opponents in jail. The economy has been in a freefall meltdown for quite some time. And millions of Venezuelans, well, a tenth of the country has left. <laughs> Among those of the remain, at least a million have turned up to protest the rule of Maduro. So, um, I don't know. I'm sure that oil company intrigues are involved. I'm sure the Trump administration machinations are going on and the CIA is probably involved and that's probably all bad. But uh, I'm skeptical that, you know, the CIA has been organizing all these protests and I'm skeptical that uh, this is not, at least to a large degree, a homegrown rebellion against Maduro on the part of the National Assembly. Then again, I don't know. We'll just watch and see what happens like everybody else. And we're really scratching our heads over the fact that apparently both the Trump administration and the Putin administration are happy to see the arms agreement negotiated between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev uh, go by the boards. I mean, both administrations seem to want to abandon this effort. This can't be to the advantage of uh, the Russian people or the American people. The intermediate missiles are the ones that, uh, at least in the European theater, land the quickest or the Hardest ones to uh, counter a mistake with, shall we say. We have a working hypothesis that it is the military-industrial complexes of both the U.S. and Russia that see dollar signs here, and the oligarchs of both nations are probably behind this, but um, don't know for sure and want to talk about something else. Before we move to happy topics, if, if we ever get there, <laughs> we do have one troublesome thing to mention. 
It has been long supposed that digital news organizations are going to survive the death spiral that uh, many, many publications are in. Writing in the Columbia Journalism Review, Alex Perrine noted that journalists have become accustomed to layoffs, but uh, this, last, this past week felt more apocalyptic than usual. More than 1,000 people lost their jobs in a wave of cuts at BuzzFeed, the Gannett Newspaper Group, the Verizon Media Group, which includes Huffington Post and Yahoo News. The layoffs at Gannett publications like the Arizona Republic, the Indianapolis Star weren't surprising with uh, hedge fund vultures feeding in on the remains of papers, but digital as news organizations, as we say, were supposed to be survivors. But BuzzFeed cut 15% of its staff in the bloodbath, including the entire national desk. The Huff Post axed its whole opinion section. So much for websites picking up the journalism torch from print newspapers. Noted Columbia Journalism Review, if the digital natives do survive, it might not have much to do with news gathering. I think this might be a good time to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Truth Serum after former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie downed tequila shots on Stephen Colbert's Late Show and said his friend, Donald Trump, blew the shutdown fight and in turn the Republican Party into something different than it was. Asked if he'd been a better president, Christie said yes. That's what we love about Stephen Colbert. He asks the tough questions. It was reportedly also a bad week last week for intimacy with a warning that came from the Center for Disease Control that people should no longer, quote, kiss or snuggle hedgehogs, unquote. Ten people have recently contracted a rare form of salmonella after close contact with their pet hedgehog. And here's an item we're not sure whether it was a good week for or a bad week for math last week, but the report is that a 911 dispatcher in Indiana helped a desperate schoolboy with his math homework. Dispatcher Antonia Bundy talked the boy through how to add fractions, and the relieved boy thanked her and apologized for calling 911. And lastly, it was an ugly week last week, surely an ugly week, for North Koreans who have been told by their government to produce 200 pounds of, quote, human manure, unquote, every day. This is to both help fertilize the nation's crops. <laughs> if you buy produce from North Korea, be sure to wash it. And also, evidently, to pay for any shortfall in cash the nation is suffering, which I'm sure it is. The magazine did point out that since no human being makes that much poop in a given day, 200 pounds, well, that's, that's your body weight and poop, and then some. The new directive was described as a unique kind of tax. But, you know, considering this is the North Korean government we're talking about, I think we'd be disappointed if it was more reasonable and sane. I would be. Speaking of North Korea, their leader, Kim Jong-un, whom Donald Trump says he fell in love with the first time they met, is anxious to have another meeting with the president, which may take place this month. They just are not sure where or when. It should also be noted that in part of uh, 
the president's tweet storm where he criticized intelligence officials. Apparently, he was irked over what they said about North Korea. Writing in Washington Post, John Wagner and Shane Harris noted that in his tweets, Trump had sought to defend progress on North Korea ahead of a planned second summit. During Tuesday's hearings, Tuesday last week, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, said that North Korea was unlikely to completely give up its nuclear weapons and production capabilities, which the country's leaders considered critical to the regime's survival. This prompted a rebuttal from Donald Trump, who said, North Korea's relationship is best it has ever been with the U.S. No testing, getting remains, hostages returned, decent chance of denuclearization. Time will tell what will happen with North Korea. But at the end of the previous administration, relationship was horrendous and very bad things were about to happen. Now, a whole different story. (laughs) This prompted rebukes from Democrats, including Representative Adam Schiff, who's chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who said it is a credit to our intelligence agencies that they continue to provide rigorous and realistic analysis of threats we face. It's deeply dangerous that the White House isn't listening. Of course, I do want to add to that, that um, going through stuff from 2005, I came across a lot of what was being said by authorities in the intelligence community about stuff like weapons of mass destruction and, you know, Al-Qaeda operating inside Iraq. Remember that stuff? That stuff which turned out to be completely untrue? In fact, I'm holding in my hand right now. An article from the Sacramento Bee, dateline December 14th, 2005. Headline, Pentagon to feed pro-U.S. stories to foreign media. Article by Matt Kelly. A $300 million Pentagon psychological warfare operation includes plans for placing pro-American messages in foreign media outlets without disclosing the U.S. government as the source the military official in charge of the program says. They've been doing this for quite some time. It's called blowback. You put something in a foreign news source that comes from us, then you cite a foreign news source as a... Then you cite that same foreign news source as the origination of the material. Knowing this has been, been going on for decades, I didn't get too upset when an alarmed friend sent me an email which had the following headline to it. U.S. repeals propaganda ban, spreads government-made news to Americans. Peace notes that for decades, a so-called anti-propaganda law prevented the U.S. government's mammoth broadcasting arm delivering programming to American audiences. But on July 20th, that came silently to an end with the implementation of a new reform passed in January. The result? An unleashing of thousands of hours per week of government-funded radio and TV programs. Well, okay, on the face of it, that's maybe not so good. On the other hand, keep this in mind. Fox News is something produced by a private organization, whereas National Public Radio and PBS are in part government-sponsored. Well, if you're a listener to this program and have been for a while, you know that we've been hitting this topic for the past decade and a half, and we'll continue to do so. I guess I was slightly dissing the Washington Post just a moment ago, but I do want to give an attaboy to Dana Milbank, writing in the Post, who picked up on something that didn't get much mention didn't get much play in the rest of the press about that speech that Donald Trump gave when he supposedly compromised on the government shutdown. Dana Milbank noted that the latest act of reverse engineering of, of, of the government to try and 
make it look as though Trump, Trump's pronouncements make sense. I mean, we referred to this on his TV show, The Apprentice. They had to go back and reverse engineer the footage they were going to air to make it look like Trump's arbitrary decisions were sound. Said Dana Milbank, the latest act of reverse engineering occurred last week after Trump repeatedly claimed that sex traffickers were smuggling scores of helpless women bound and gagged with duct tape in windowless vans across the southern border. As I mentioned in last week's program, that was the moment when it really struck me that this man is deranged. Milbank notes that after border experts were quoted as saying this wasn't true, a senior Border Patrol official emailed an urgent request to agents seeking, quote, any information you may have, unquote, to back up the president's duct tape fantasy. And not surprisingly, so far, no response. <laughs> Said Dana Milbank, they say you can fix anything with duct tape, but using it to repair a presidency? I don't know. Actually, repairing a presidency may be the, the second thing that duct tape is no good at. It's apparently no good at sealing ducts. You don't believe me? Ask anybody who works in HVAC. And no, we're not going to get into the controversy of whether it's duct tape or duct tape, okay? Something else we'd like to comment on this program is political correctness run amok. Al Franken, a good and progressive United States senator, was forced to resign by the PC-minded because of photographs that emerged where he was apparently pretending to grasp a woman's chest. No, an apology wasn't enough. He had to resign. He did. The governor of Virginia is currently undergoing a siege from people who demand that he, too, resign because of pictures that surfaced in I guess he was, I didn't realize he was a doctor. His medical school yearbook in 1984 of someone in blackface standing next to someone dressed as a KKK member. The governor has denied that either person is him. Even if it was him, which seems to be in doubt, does he have to resign as governor? He just can't apologize for youthful indiscretion? Here's what really gets me. A year before that picture appeared in a medical school yearbook. I was working on my medical school yearbook. I was one of the photographers and editors. And I had in mind a prank photo that, well, I would hate to think what people would say if we'd gone through with it. Perhaps it's fortunate that no one can find a copy of my medical school yearbook and point to a picture and say, it's time he resigned from Radio Parallax. Here, here. You'd be out of a job. I'll go work for Fox News. The joke, which we didn't execute, was that because the Chicano medical students had their own picture taken and put it in the yearbook, I might have taken the picture. And the women in medicine had a picture taken and had their picture put in the yearbook. Somebody got the idea, might have been me, I'm not 100% sure, but might have been me, that it would be funny to get a bunch of white guys together, take their picture, and insert it in the yearbook under <laughs> the heading, white males in medicine. Now, we never got around to doing it, but I do remember on one of the very last days of medical school, a fairly angry John Belleville accosting me after the yearbook came out, asking me, what happened to that picture we were going to do with the white males? I said, I don't know, John. I never got around to rounding us all up. And nobody else did either, so it did never happened. He said, that's too bad. You should have done it. I said, yeah, I think it is too bad. It would have been funny, but we didn't do it. What are you going to do? Now, I should note that I was on very good terms with the Chicano Medical Students Association. I was on very good terms with the women in medicine. 
If I dare say so, I was on pretty good terms with everybody in my class. This was a joke. But God help me if we'd done it in this age of political correctness. People would be calling for me to end this program right now, I think. I would suspect that some of the more aggressive social justice wars might go after the Chicano medical students for having a politically incorrect name. They're not Chicanos anymore. Anyway, in the four minutes or so we have left in this segment, it might be a good time to uh, take a more serious look at some issues of race relations. In this case, the American Chronicle section of The New Yorker, article by Louis Menard, titled, In the Eye of the Law, subheadline, How White Supremacy Enlisted the American Legal System. Menard starts out by quoting Iowa Congressman Steve King, who was asking why it was there was anything wrong with white nationalism and white supremacy and Western civilization, which he lumped together. Menard, to his credit, did say that King also said in this comment in his comments that he condemned white nationalism and white supremacy as an evil and bigoted ideology. It's just that he thought that Western civilization should be left alone. Menard does point out that 17 states once had laws banning interracial marriage, which is pretty much at the heart of the doctrine of white supremacy until 1967, when the Supreme Court declared them unconstitutional. 1967. Before that time, the laws in 17 states said you couldn't marry someone of a different race. It it is mind-boggling. Menard notes that American race relations were largely shaped by states that had succeeded from the Union in 1861, and elected officials of those states almost all spoke the language of white supremacy. White supremacy was, in fact, the motto of the Alabama Democratic Party until 1966. should be noted that Mississippi did not ratify the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery, until 1995. Anyway, we recommend this article to you, which talks at great length about Plessy versus Ferguson, something we have spoken about in this program before, one of the all-time worst decisions to come out of the United States Supreme Court. And by the way, for more information on that, we refer you to our previous interview with author and lawyer Michael Trackman about his book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits. It was one of our, I think, favorite interviews ever in this program. But in brief, we would note that Plessy was a test case challenging a law that Louisiana had passed in 1890, the Separate Car Act, requiring railroads to maintain separate cars for white and colored riders in order, according to the act, to promote the comfort of passengers. In this case, the constitutional issue was that of, you know, a state law. When they passed its separate cars law, a New Orleans lawyer and newspaper editor named Louis Martinet formed the Citizens Committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law and set about building a case. The article notes that he first approached the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which agreed to act as a silent partner, not out of altruism. From a business point of view, segregation represented a cost, the cost of providing separate facilities for black customers. It would be cheaper for the railroads if the states had mandated integration instead. The legal contortions that made this case such a disaster were based on the fact that several constitutional amendments pointed out that blacks were no longer slaves and had to be treated equally. Equally, In this case, the law was arguing that having people be separated, separate facilities, were not inherently unequal. The opinion contained this language. We consider the underlying fallacy of the plaintiff's argument to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. Of course, everyone in the country knew this was hogwash. 
article also notes that when Louis Martinet formed the Citizens Committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law, he wrote to Frederick Douglass and asked for his support. Douglass refused, saying he could not see how the case could help things. And he was proved correct. The decision was the worst possible outcome, the one that Plessy's lawyers had feared. It stamped a constitutional seal of approval on state-mandated racial segregation. Anyway, for more information on this, you're going to have to read the entire article yourself or go to our website and pull up our discussion we had on the topic of Brown versus Board of Education. It took till the mid-50s to undo the evil of Plessy versus Ferguson uh, with the Warren Court, their decision in Brown v. Board of Education. You can pull up that particular piece by typing in William Beteta, B-E-T-E-T-A, on our search function. It's, it's show 258. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got lots, lots more in the second half. Stick around. Mr. Merlin does point out that although our show is separate into two different halves, they are equal, usually.